If you look at the state of the world today, it looks like full-fledged diplomacy has broken out. Remember, I did not say full-fledged peace or peacemaking has broken out because diplomacy isn't just always or necessarily about making peace or about resolving conflicts. Diplomacy can also be about lighting up conflicts, about waging war, about trying to find allies in a war, about trying to break up alliances in a war. All that is also diplomacy. So diplomacy isn't just about peacemaking. So when I say full-fledged diplomacy is broken out in the world, it has many layers. Obviously, a lot of it is linked to what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. That means the war. But there are many other dimensions to it. And you know what? When such a big world redefining event takes place, you find echoes of it in many different places in many unlikely uh, corners. And one of those was a hall at Taj Palace Hotel in Delhi where the Raisina Dialogue was being held, organized by ORF or what used to be called Observer Research Foundation. So the highlight of the conference, in fact, was a one-on-one -on -one session between Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Now you see him all over the world. He must be the busiest diplomat in the world, busiest and also the most harassed because people ask him tough questions all the time. And his country has a tough case. So Sergei Lavrov was in conversation with Sanjay Joshi. Sanjay Joshi is chairman of ORF, one-on-one -on -one with an audience and some audience questions. So a lot of the conversation was Lavrov giving his own idea of why the war started. Usual thing that Putin also said. They all, everybody speaks from the same three by five cards. Everybody has the same party line. We were under threat. NATO was expanding. Ukraine was getting too uppity. They were bombing Russian speakers, Russian origin people in Donbass. They had launched a war. They were using artillery. We were left with no choice but to, but to carry out this special military operation in our self-defense. So that apart, those were lines you've heard before. Then came the turn, then came the turn of our region. Then came the turn, say, of Indo-Pacific. And what does India do? What does India do in a situation or how does India read a situation? In fact, this came up as a result of a question by a young scholar, young Raisina scholar at the conference, that where does India see itself given this special relationship between Russia and China on the one hand, India's problems with China on the other, what's ha happening between Russia and the West, and what are, what are the implications for India, given, given the fact that India also has deepening ties with the Western world. Now, in this situation, what would you expect Lavrov to say? Normally, you would have thought if he's a conventional diplomat, he would have sidestepped it or said something like, this is a different occasion, I should not be talking about this, this is about my hosts, etc., etc. But today's Russian diplomats are not like that. So if, if the Chinese diplomats are wolf warriors, Indian diplomats, if you see our foreign minister now speaking, also speaks quite explicitly and quite, quite bluntly. So Lavrov was no different, except except Lavrov sort of went into what some people would see as a diatribe against many things that many global many global organizations particularly those that are of interest to India for example he said on G20 he said look at G20 G20 came into being in 1999 since 99 did G20 ever talk about Iraq did G20 ever talk about Libya Afghanistan Yugoslavia because it was there in 1999. No, it never talked about any of that. 
because the West was on the other side. That's the implication. He didn't say it, but that's the implication because these were wars waged by the West. So G20 never bothered about any of this. He said nobody was giving a damn. His words, nobody was giving a damn about these wars. G20 was only about finances, about economic policies. Now, after so many years, after so many years, I'm quoting him, after so many years that Russia has decided to defend itself and fight a war, G20 is nothing but Russia and Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine, he says. So he says, look, the West thinks that this war is existential for them, that Russia's strategic defeat is existential for them, it is existential for us also. So you see, first of all, G20, now India is the, has the presidency of G20, India is hosting this, so this is a condemnation of G20 as it stands today. And then he says, I just want the Western world to treat others also as grown-ups, because they are now threatening countries in the world to accept to accept the imposition of sanctions against Russia, against or this will have or that will have. And he said, they go to people in these countries, by implication also to India, that you know, we know that you have a bank account in such, a, such and such bank in America or in the Western world. We know that you have your kids at Stanford. These, these things really happen and you people know it. He sort of taunts the audience. He said, you should have known this was coming. And he said, G20 should have taken notice of it. And he said, do you? He turns to the audience and then he turns to the host, Sanjoy Joshi. And he said, you should have known this while preparing for this conversation. That in September last year, Zelensky issued a decree where he said it would be a crime for anybody in Ukraine to negotiate with Russia as long as Putin is the president of Russia. So he says, unless you know that, unless you know that, you can't deal with the situation, you can't understand the situation. Implication again being, how can you negotiate, how can you tell us to negotiate with, with, with the Ukrainians if their official position is, if their official legal constitutional position is that it's criminal to negotiate with Russia as long as Putin is the president. Then the question arises that this Sino-Russian closeness, now it's well known in the world and I will give you the other side of that in a few minutes, that that China and Russia are now getting very close because Russia needs support. China is the only country that can give Russia real support. Also, China needs Russia not just for strategic reasons, diplomatic reasons, economic, political reasons, but also simply because Russia is a very good source, a very robust source of onshore oil and gas, which can come through pipelines into China. So China does not have to worry about what the say the Quad navies, although the Quad never says it, but notionally say the Quad navies might do to Molokka Strait, right? Now they are getting there so much of the oil, so much of the oil and gas coming overland from Russia. So Russia is of strategic importance to China. It's also a big market for China. And now there's a lot of talk that China may start supplying military equipment, at least consumables like ammunition to the Russians. The Russians are very short of ammunition, particularly artillery ammunition. So the question is, with Russia and China getting so close together, what implication does it have for India-Russia relations? So listen to what Lavrov says. So as I explain this, maybe for better understanding, we will also play for you some of the lines that Lavrov spoke on exactly this question. And I would pause and let you hear that. And then I'll come back in a couple of moments to you. Never, we never uh, make friends against somebody. 
Uh, we have excellent relations with China and excellent relations with India. Uh, the relations with India are characterized in the official documents signed by the two leaders uh, as especially privileged strategic partnership. So what does Lavrov say? He says, we never make friends against anybody, right? That means we never ent enter into alliances which are directed at some other country. Now, I know that there, there will be many questions, there will be many interpretations, there will be objections, but I am just telling you what he said. He said, we never make friends against anybody. He said, your leader and my leader, that is Putin, they have signed an agreement saying that this is a very special, privileged, strategic partnership. I do not believe at this point your country, that is India, has signed such an agreement or treaty with any other country, right? So we have a very special relationship with India. Remember that. And this relationship goes into, he said, economy, technology, military, culture, educational, all these areas and think tanks are meeting, etc., etc. And similarly, he says for China. In fact, for China, he goes a step ahead. First of all, he tells us how good Russia's relationship with India is. He said, you and we have signed an agreement, a kind of a treaty that says that this is the most special, privileged, strategic partnership. You do not have an agreement like that with any other country. He's rubbing it in. With China, he says, we, the Russians, with China, our relationship has never been so good since the founding of China. So basically, he's leapfrogging backwards to pre-Soviet times or to Soviet times and saying that, that even, even in the heyday of the Soviet Union and, and the rise of Mao, even then the relationship between, say, Soviet Union, which is the precursor state to Russia, or Russia is the successor state in a way to Soviet, Soviet Union, even in that period, the relationship between the Soviet Union or Russia and China wasn't as good as it is now. He didn't say it. I've just made a straight translation of what he said. So he said, our relationship, Russia's relationship with China has never been so good since the founding of China. And then he goes on to say, my predecessor, his predecessor, Yevgeny Primakov, he came up with the idea of what became BRICS ultimately. And he says BRICS, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. The BRICS has now become such such a such an attractive formulation that two dozen countries are waiting to join it. They are desperate to join it. They are very keen to join it. Then he says, then he says the momentum for this, however, momentum for our relationship comes from another body, and that's not a body we hear about that much in India in our conversations. That is RIC or RIC as he calls it. RIC is Russia, India, China. So he said there is also a Troika, that is Russia, India and China. They've already had their 21st or 22nd meeting, quote-unquote, that's what he said. He said, we believe that the more they meet together in between on the, on the RIC forum or even the BRICS forum, the better it is for us. And he says, RIC is a forum where our presence helps because maybe India and China don't feel so so comfortable meeting each other one on one. So our presence helps. So once again, he's pitchforking Russia between India and China as a force for good. And then, then he again says, we are never playing one country against the other. Other countries are doing it, right? Other countries are doing it and then Indo-Pacific comes in, right? Other countries are doing it, Indo-Pacific, Quad. He said, see, Quad now is no longer being used or being developed for economic purposes, but for military purposes. Again, he said AUKUS. What is AUKUS, right? So he attacks, he's attacked G20, 
After that, he's attacked the Indo-Pacific formulation. He's attacked AUKUS. All right. So, okay, you might say, why should India bother about what he says on AUKUS? But the fact is, India's keenest allies are members of AUKUS. When AUKUS was formed, there was wide celebration in India that, look, some other kind of Western alliance is coming up now to put China in its place. Because what we share with the West is our troubles with China. Now, he, on the other hand, says that AUKUS, Quad, is being militarized, which is a bad idea. Everybody knows whatever Quad is, whether it's for military purposes, economic purposes, maybe for vaccinations, etc., etc., whatever Quad is, the only factor, the binding factor with all the members of the Quad is the threat of China. Once again now, when he's bad-mouthing the Quad where India is a member, you know what the implications are. And then he goes on to say, look at the Americans, the Western world, now they're talking about ASEAN plus one. They want to hold East Asia summits minus China and minus Russia. You know what that means? And then he says, Russia believes in bringing people together, implying that all these other formulations that the West has brought in, where, mind you, India is a very keen partner, actually take people apart or break countries apart. Then he says, then he says, look at Seymour Hirsch. Seymour Hirsch is a well-known American freelance journalist. He's written a big story, very claims that the sabotage on the energy pipeline going into Scandinavia was carried out as an American operation, American intelligence operation. So he said, look, we asked for, a, for an investigation. The Americans laughed. They said, it's a joke. No such thing can be done. So after having dissed the Indo-Pacific, AUKUS, the Quad, ASEAN plus one, East Asia summit, etc., 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 and after having claimed that Russia is actually a factor, a force for good between India and China, it's providing a bunch of forums that bring Indians and the Chinese together so they can talk and maybe resolve their problems. He then also taunts Sanjay Joshi as they are concluding. So in conclusion, Sanjay Joshi says, hopefully we will meet again next year in less contentious times. Do you think that's possible? And he only responds by saying, again, it's a taunt on Sanjay Joshi that, well, the Americans will certainly suggest some questions that you can use. So once again, that's like telling your host, which is ORF and Raisina Conference, and in this case, the chairman of ORF, that what they are doing is on the say-so of the Americans. So he said this. There can always be much debate on whether he's speaking the truth, he's lying, etc., etc. Because these are contentious times, and these are polarized times, particularly on Ukraine, Russia, even in India, there's a strong public opinion which is in favor of Russia because there is so much skepticism of the West. At which point, maybe I can unleash that old, familiar and much-used line on the profession of diplomacy, spoken by Sir Henry Wharton, who was a British diplomat between 16th and 17th century, right? That far back. Say in India at the peak of the Mughal Empire, right? 1568, he was born. 1639, he died. So he said at one point when he was carrying out diplomacy in Europe, his exact line was, a diplomat is an honest gentleman sent to lie abroad for the good of his country. So that usually we'll, you will find it diplomatic services. People say diplomats are sent abroad to lie for the good of their country. So whatever he's doing, he's doing for what he sees as the good of his country. Having said this, let me also, since I promised you earlier, I will also give you the picture from the other side in America. I will share, you, share with you a link. We can't use it on, on our screen. I will share with you a link of something that Farid Zakaria has said, and he's made a very good point. He says that in America now, you have a dangerous situation 
where both Republicans and diplomats who might disagree on many things, but on policy towards China, they both become victims of groupthink. And America is now doing groupthink, which means China is an enemy, 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 as if the inevitability of decades of tensions with China, which can lead to competition, rivalry, a new Cold War, maybe even a real war going ahead. And he says this is the time for Americans to step back and debate this most, more healthily instead of indulging in groupthink. An example of groupthink he gives is the alacrity with which Joe Biden sent up those fighter planes to bring down at least four balloons after the big Chinese balloon. And he says most of those balloons are most likely balloons sent up by hobbyists or meteorologic clubs. And some of these balloons may not even cost $12. But this is some kind of a neurosis whereby Biden was sending up these very expensive fighter planes and shooting down these $12 balloons with $400,000 missiles. And the only reason this was being done was because Biden did not want to be seen as being weak on China. And he gives the example of the Iraq war. And he said when debates on the Iraq war were going on and some people on the, in the Congress and congressional hearings said that, look, we should give diplomacy a chance or we should look at what's, what's coming from the other side. We should examine facts, details, etc. Then they were shouted down as being guilty of providing comfort to the enemy. And he said that I have seen something similar happening on House Foreign Affairs Committee now on China. So he says China will be our serious strategic challenge for a long time. That's why our policy should be rational and considered. It should not be driven by paranoia, hysteria and the fear of being branded weak. Finally goes on to say that look now Kevin McCarthy, the house speaker, he's threatening to go to Taiwan. When Nancy Pelosi went to ta Taiwan, it gave the Chinese the opportunity to put on trial all their system of blockading Taiwan, which is, only, which is the only military strategy they have and only military objective they have, blockading of Taiwan. Now, if Kevin McCarthy also decides to go, that will only give the Chinese an opportunity to try out an even longer blockade plan. And this at a time when China is carrying out serious nuclear modernization. So far, China was good with 200 or so nuclear weapons because they also believed in, in the philosophy of more is not necessary when less is enough. But not now. They are now going to increase their nuclear weapons by three times, right? And all of those would, would be directed at America at a time when all of Russia's nuclear weapons are directed at America and Russia and China are closer than they've ever been. So America has to think about a situation, a prospect, when China and Russia are closely allied and all their nukes are only directed, targeted at, at, at America. So he says America has to think about a specter whereby Russia and China are very closely aligned now and all their nukes are all directed at America. And he says today you can't take China so lightly. In 2000, China was 4% of global GDP. Today it's 18% of global GDP. And yet given the fact that there is a bipartisan agreement between the Republicans and Democrats who rarely agree on anything, the Chinese Communist Party is a big enemy, is the enemy and has to go. That means that that would imply that regime change in China is the only solution. And that would mean decades and decades of trouble and risks and maybe war. And that's the reason he's saying, please, please, please do not walk into the trap of group thing. And if you're there already, get out of it and give real diplomacy a chance. That's the reason I began this episode by saying diplomacy has now 
broken out worldwide in many different ways. You saw one side from Lavrov, you are seeing the other playing out in Washington. 